40 years ago, um, my job was delivering those materials he's talking about. Uh, in the 1970s, the mission that I worked for at that time uh, delivered the Bible education by extension materials to uh, uh, groups that were being trained in uh, the communist, former communist countries behind the Iron Curtain, as well as uh, uh, across Northern Africa. In fact, I'll, I'll even talk about that a little bit tonight. Uh, I was at the meeting where the director of this ministry that uh, Dave represents was voted in. And uh, it was an amazing event. Uh, there were 100 missions that gathered in Europe, uh, the heads of 100 European mission agencies. And uh, those 100 directors were there, and I was filling in for the director of our mission, who was sick uh, in Germany. And, and I was a 21-year-old college kid sitting with all these 50-year-old missions directors voting on this man that was going to do Bible education by extension. It's just one of those things only the Lord could work out. Tonight, we're looking at the book of Revelation. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and then going back from there to Acts 19. And I'm just thankful you're here. I was looking around trying to say hello. I already sent hello. To the, yes, yes, hello, hello. Uh, St. William and Mary, it's good to see you. All the people from Calvary are showing up. And uh, uh, the Cools, the Schroders, who am I missing? Uh, so thank you for coming. Um, it's just a blessing. I served at that church almost 10 years, and it was a joy, and they drove over from Kalamazoo. Tonight, what we're looking at is um, an extension this morning. We're looking this morning at the five churches that had severe conditions spiritually, the first one being Ephesus, who lost their what? First love. As a pastor, I used to love to talk to people that thought they lost their salvation. That's the most common reason people come to see pastors in evangelical churches. They think they've lost their salvation. And, and I always love to talk to them because if someone has lost something, if you lost your car keys, it meant at one time what? Yeah. And so I'd say, let's just pause. So you've lost your salvation. Tell me what you had. And they would go through and talk about you know, their belief in Christ who died in their place and was their substitute and that his death, I mean, they were preaching the gospel to me and I said, you know what? The one that you said saved you back then said that nothing, no one including you can ever pluck you out of his hand. And so you have just told me that you are saved and you just don't know it. And so we'll work on that, you know, and basically they didn't understand that it, salvation is not an emotion. You know, salvation is much like marriage. Either you are or you're not. You know what I mean? And you sometimes don't feel like it. You know? You, you, you don't always have the heebie-jeebies, you know, all the time, the, the kind of electricity, but you have this continued relationship of covenant and faithfulness, and, uh, and we tell them fact, faith, feeling. But if you have lost your first love, Ephesus had it at one time. So that's what we want to look at. So start in Revelation with me, chapter 2. And look what the Lord says to them in verse 4. That's where uh, we bumped into him this morning. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left. They didn't really, you know, we talk about losing, but they didn't so much lose it as they left it by allowing other things to push it out. So my question is, what does first love for Jesus Christ look like? 
And that's what we'll see as we turn back to Acts chapter 19, because that's the biography of this church. Uh, this was the, the greatest of the Old Testament, I, I mean of the early church, the greatest of those, those churches that Paul established. And in church history, it was the greatest early church, the most powerful, the most prolific. Well, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and that's first love. And the first love Ephesian church that Jesus writes to was his greatest church. Eusebius, church historian from the city of Caesarea in modern day Israel, in the third century, he was the first church historian, said that the church in Ephesus had 50,000 people. I mean, that's bigger than Willow Creek and Saddleback and, you know. And they had, as I said this morning, a galaxy of pastors, Paul, Timothy, the apostle John, Mary attended there, and, and all the other luminaries would go through there. Perhaps the greatest and most powerful revival of history was there. And that's what's recorded in Acts chapter 19 and we'll look at. Um, but as I have mentioned many times, our privilege is now that we no longer are localized in one local church in America, we travel between right now 14 different mission agencies use Bonnie and, and use me in ministry to their missionaries. And so far in 2019, we have met face-to-face -face with about 1,200 professional missionaries. And we've trained them, we've counseled them. In one context, we're spiritual mental health care providers. But let me tell you about just one. I was meeting with a doctor in February. We were in Thailand. He is a doctor in an Islamic country, and he basically uses the hospital he works at as the front, and he travels into another country that's, that's uh, strictly uh, very intense, kind of like Saudi Arabia Islamic, not like Jordan Islamic, it's very strict. And so he bases there and wears a, he wears an Arabic outfit and goes in and actually ministers to groups in this other country, which is, just sounds like a you know, born movie or something like that. You know, I mean, it just sounds impossible, but that's what he did. And, and I said, wow, I said, I, I used to work in North Africa. I said, what, what, tell me about it. He says, oh, there's the greatest revival going on. And he said, it swept, it started actually, he said, in Morocco. I said, oh, Morocco, that's where we worked. He says, yeah, there's this really old man, he's the granddaddy. And I started piecing together what he was saying and I said, wow. I met that man in 1978. I said, 41 years ago. And let, let me just tell you what God can do with an Ephesian first love surrendered life. Because that man from Morocco, a Muslim, an Islamic heritage man who came to Christ, started praying. 40 years ago, I met him. Uh, this is what happened to me. I was asked to ride on a train from Germany to Switzerland and drive a van carrying 6,000 Bibles to North Africa to give to a believer in Morocco who had surrendered to the Lord, who had written to the West, to, or to the North, I guess. He had written to Transworld Radio. He said, my burden is to reach Northern Africa for Christ. He says, I have come to Christ. He said, there are six believers I know of that he had personal contact with and had led to the Lord in Morocco. And he said, we believe that we can start a movement of God if you'll just get us Bibles. So they hired a bunch of college kids, that's where I came from, to drive these from uh, central, you know, Germany and pick up kids in Switzerland, that was me, and drive all the way down through France and then down to Spain, cross at Gibraltar on the ferry and smuggle 
them into a Muslim country. That was our job. So, you know, when you're a college kid, you do anything, and it's kind of exciting and fun. Um, <laughs> so they wouldn't tell us his name. And see, now that I pieced together, in February, I finally heard the other side of the story, because our side of the story was this. I mean, this is 1978, I was in seminary, I had volunteered to work for three months, we were currying Bibles all over Eastern Europe, and now there was a North Africa trip, and I said, great. And I'd seen the Lord already do this. I mean, we, we actually started smuggling the printing press plates for those Bible education by extension materials. It was much easier to smuggle all the printing press plates so they could print the thousands of copies over there rather than try and take thousands of copies and hide them and take them across the border. So it, it was an exciting summer. But they said, well, this is a little different trip. We won't tell you the name of this man because there are only six Christians in his country. And if you are arrested at the border and have his name uh, written down, they'll get it. If you even know it, they'll do something to you until you'll tell them. And I said, okay, well, that's not bad. I said, where do we take him? They said, we can't tell you where to take him either. <laughs> I said, you know, there are eight college kids driving in a Mercedes van with a trailer behind it filled with 6,000 Bibles. And they said, all we'll tell you is this. If you get into Morocco, if you make it across the border, you'll know where to go. But they said, don't get caught. I said, why? They said, because the Bibles are wrapped in brown paper, and in Arabic, the name of every person that's ever responded to Transworld Radio is written out with their address. So if the Islamic police find those, 3,000 of them were addressed, 3,000 of them were not addressed, he said, those 3,000 people will be hunted down. So the pressure's on you, don't get caught. I said, oh, that's great. So this man, what I found out in February was, he was praying. See, the power of a surrendered life, we have no concept of all God can do with someone who will just surrender and let God work through him. And this man said, I believe I'm gonna reach Northern Africa for Christ, and by the way, they are. More people are getting saved every day in Muslim countries than were saved every century for all those early years of, of Islam. There is a growing movement, all these refugees coming into, that came in a couple, three years ago from Syria and Iraq and everywhere else into Europe, are forming churches. The seminary that, that we work with out of Jordan is pumping pastors not to Arab countries anymore. They're pumping them into Central and Western Europe. There are congregations just in Germany, in France, all over the place. We just served, Bonnie and I, in November, and one up in, in northern part of UK. And these Islamic people detached from their, their mullah and their society that's watching them all the time and guarding them, when they get dis, dis, you know, disconnected from that, and get out here and find out that Christianity, real Christianity, is unbelievably something they never realized was possible. They heard horrible things about us. They meet Christians. Uh, one doctor told me, he said, this refugee was coming under the wire into, uh, I don't know, uh, Turkey, I think it was, coming under the fence there. And this Samaritan's Purse group was there and was allowed at that period of time to give them a Bible wrapped in a blanket. And this, this Muslim said to the guy, he says, if I was at my fence of my country and you crawled under, we would shoot you. Why are you handing me a blanket and a Bible when I'm sneaking in here? And they said, we're doing it 
in the name of Christ. And they can't resist that. And thousands and thousands of these people that we're so worried about are all going to blow up America if they get here are actually coming to Christ. It's unbelievable what the Lord is doing. He is causing or allowing the unrest in Syria and Iraq to drive millions of people out and put them under the exposure of the gospel. And they are lovingly coming to Christ. It's amazing. But this guy was praying for it 40 years ago, and he prayed for God to reach the Muslim people. He contacted the believers in the West. He agreed to be the tool. He prayed God would bring the Bibles, and so we delivered them. And basically, the short story is this. I was the driver of the van. We drove 6,000 kilometers from where I picked them up in, uh, in Switzerland all the way down through France and Spain and down into Gibraltar and across the border, and we started driving around Morocco, and our job was to mail the 3,000 so we went to every mailbox in Morocco, because you can only put one or two Bibles in a mailbox, but once they're inside Dar el-Islam, inside the Islamic countries, they don't censor the mail. They only censor the apostate, you know, uh, us, infidels on the outside, but once you're inside, they don't. And so we were mailing Bibles, it took us weeks to mail 3,000, but we had to deliver the last 3,000 to this guy. And so we started praying. And the first per one, one of the people in the back of the van says, I know where we're supposed to go. Now remember what the signs look like. You ever seen Arabic? You know, and here I'm driving with a Michelin map and nothing, I mean, you can't even compare the wiggles. They're just indecipherable. So I just was looking at direction of roads. And they said, no, 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 it's that way. I said, really? Okay. You know, if you don't know where to go, drive faster. So I just drove that way. <laughs> Someone else and said, no, 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 now we turn to the right. Basically, one by one, now I'm not charismatic in the sense of visions and everything else. Charisma is a Greek word, charismatoi is work of the spirit. But I'm not the traditional charismatic that sees things and believes in visions, but I saw it. One by one, the other seven members said, I know we're supposed to do this and this and this. And we got to a city and they said, go that way and I'm driving and the road kept going. We had a trailer behind us, and I don't know how to back up with a trailer. I'm one of those that does pull-throughs, you know, go to Cracker Barrel and pull through. And, uh, and there, the road was going like this, and it was going like this. We were going into the souk. Do you know what the souk is? It's the old marketplace in the center of these 1,000, 1,500-year-old Islamic towns in Morocco. And the road was getting narrower and narrower, and they said, this is the way we're supposed to go. And I says, okay. I'm the driver, and I can't back up. We're stopping here. And I pulled over to the side with this Mercedes jumbo out of place. There were donkeys walking by us. And here's this Mercedes van and a trailer, a travel trailer behind it. And I just pulled over the curb, and I said, we're praying because we have to turn around. I'm not going any further because we'll get stuck. So we all bowed our heads, and just as we bowed our heads, you know, the call to prayer thing went off. It looked like we were on an anthill. People, you know, you know how they wear the burkas all the way down in black usually. They were just streaming by us. People were crawling over the trailer hitch. People were going around touching our hood. People, we were just, and I thought, what is going on? We were parked in front of the central mosque <laughs> of the city of Fez, if you've ever heard of it. It's one of the larger cities in Morocco. And it was Man, it just looked like, you know, the capital of the United States. It's this gigantic mosque. And just... So I said, just keep praying, you know. And so we bowed our heads. It wasn't 30 seconds till 
on my window. And that man, the one that prayed for 40 years ago for God to work that's still seeing the revival, that man knocked on my window and he said, in English, he said, wow. He said, I was on my knees up on the third floor right over there, he said, praying. And he said, I said, Lord, the only time they could deliver those Bibles would be during the call to prayer because all the observant are in there. He said, it clears the town out. They just, everybody goes. And he said, so I was on my knees in my apartment right up there saying, God, the only time is during the call to prayer. And he said, I got up from my knees and I opened the curtains. And he said, this gigantic Mercedes bus <laughs> with German license plates and a truck. And we had about 10 minutes and we carried 3,000 Bibles up. And that became the seed through which his teams have gone across northern Africa. And right now, there are churches, there are small groups, there are BEE groups training all across northern Africa. Why? Because one man surrendered and said, Lord, I'll just be the tool. Well, how did we get to this in Revelation? We're looking at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, these seven churches. And here's the context of that. Jesus was crucified. He ascended to heaven. He had his apostles and, and those that worked with him, like John, Mark, and Luke, to write the Gospels. Paul and others wrote the epistles. They went out to the churches, and Jesus allowed two generations to go by. And then he comes back to see how the Christians were doing in the local churches, living out what he left them to do. See, that's how vitally concerned Christ is about this. He wants to know if we're doing what he left us to do. We're not detached. He is not out there somewhere. He is actually showing us in Revelation 1, as we saw this morning, he's walking around looking at our hearts. And he's seeing there are people like the Ephesians whose hearts have gotten clogged and they're busy. And there are others that are kind of like those Pergamites who are getting, you know, too overexposed to sin. And there are others like in Sardis we saw that are kind of, in cardiac arrest, but he's looking at that. Now, each one of these letters is very similar. I'm not teaching a course, but you know, there's the city name to the church at, whatever, and then there's the, the name that, that uh, Jesus gives him himself. He says something good about all of them. Then he expresses a concern for five of them, as we saw this morning, and basically what we saw, the medical report is that Ephesus had heart problems, and that's what I want to center on, their heart problems were they left something. And what we're going to see in Acts is what they left. Now, just for you to think about, those seven churches weren't just literal geographic groups of local believers 2,000 years ago. I believe they're also representative of every type of believer you'll find today in churches. In fact, I pastored long enough that there are Ephesian believers in every church. They're distracted. I mean, they know the Lord, they love the Lord, but boy, they've got everything else on their mind. I mean, whether it's their career or their kids or sports. I mean, they're just, they love the Lord, but they're, they're very distracted. And you can only get so much time with them until they're, you know, they're distracted. Then there are those suffering Smyrna Christians. And the people in Smyrna, were, we'll see them tomorrow morning. They were persecuted for their faith. Then there are those compromised believers, the Pergamites, the ones that, uh, I remember one church where I was that there was a man that I nominated to be a deacon and the elders came up to me and said, do you know him? I said, yeah, he's the man that unloaded the books into my office and helped me unpack my van when we moved here. They said, uh-huh, have you ever seen him at work? I said, 
no, I've only seen him at church. They said, yeah, that's the problem. He's different at church than he is at work. They said, he's known in town as he can swear a blue streak. He's one of the swindlest. You know, you can't trust him as far as you can throw him. I said, oh. So they said, don't make him a deacon. I said, oh, I don't want him to be a deacon. There are those compromised kind of people in every church. They, at church, they look great. But boy, they could never witness to anybody because no one knows they're a Christian. Uh, there are deceived believers. They're always following. You ever met those? I mean, they just read the newest book or they hear something and they're just deceived by everything. They have no kind of biblical framework. And then there are these stupefied, the sardis. Remember the cardiac arrest? These are people that, I mean, you don't even know if they're a Christian. I mean, they, when they talk about salvation, they talk about it like 50 years ago. There's no evidence in their life and no one in, in modern times has ever seen that. Then you have the Philadelphia Christians. They're usually the backbone of the church. They're dedicated. They don't want to be recognized. They love the Lord. They serve him. With no, you know, they don't need a lot of push and they don't need a lot of clap. They just, they're just there. And then we have an awful lot growing of these Laodicean Christians. They're not committed at all. I mean, they show up when they want to. Uh, they, they don't sacrifice anything. You offend them easily. I remember one church, I said that everybody's going to stand up and give a 15-second testimony to someone around them before communion, you know, because communion's only for believers. Boy, that caused almost a church split. <laughs> the people went right to the elders, and they said, if, if he ever does that again, we'll never come back to this church. You know why? Because they are not wanting to declare their allegiance to Christ, which is what communion is all about. But those kind of people are in every church. But Ephesus tells us something in chapter 19, um, and we only have, wow, 33 minutes. That's a long time. Uh, let's look at the three choices the Ephesians made that made them Christ's greatest church. And let's learn from them in Acts 19. The saints at Ephesus were heirs to the Apostle Paul's longest and most powerful ministry. He stayed there longer than any other city. He was 18 months in Corinth. He was three years in the city of Ephesus. When he left, he passed the pastoring of the church on to his spiritual son, Timothy. He sent back not one, but three letters, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. He continued to instruct the Ephesians in the faith. This is where Jesus' mother Mary lived and where she died. It was from Ephesus John was arrested by Domitian and exiled. Notable Christian leaders like Apollos, Tychicus, Priscilla, Aquila. I mean, it's just the galaxy of all the New Testament people ministered here. It was an amazing place. And then Timothy was here till he was martyred by a mob for preaching Christ. At its largest, the church was 50,000, but here's the essence. This is why this is so important. The saints of Ephesus overcame the same pressures facing us as believers today. The more you understand about Ephesus, the more you see how timely this letter is. They were living in a, a pleasure-seeking culture. Ephesus was the second city of the empire, Rome, Ephesus. Ephesus was the epicenter of Roman culture, Roman entertainment, Roman commerce. It was a direct port. All the stuff from the east came through down all those major roads who all converged and came to Ephesus and was shipped to Rome. They were part of the river of gold that was coming and all that came with it. They were in a mind-assaulting 
time for entertainment. They had perfected the Greek theaters. They had perfected the stadium, you know, uh, amphitheater type entertainments that the Roman Empire lived on. That was going on. It was just mind assaulting. And they had a materialism dominated way of life. Kind of sounds like America. Mind numbing media, uh, pleasure seeking society, and, and this, this incredible um, fixation on materialism. I mean, as a pastor, I, I, I know so many people that would, that for 5,000 more dollars, they'd move to a faraway city away from their family, friends, church, and everything else, just to have $5,000 more of a job. And they, they'd leave all their roots, all their connections, all the people that nurtured and discipled them, and for that amount of money, they would go there. And I'd say, $5,000 is a lot of money. There's two ways you can look at it. You can lower your standard of living to what you're earning, or you can keep raising your standard of living, keep trying to earn more. I said, but if you have found a connection spiritually here for your family and for your nurture and for your accountability, why would you, why would you do that? Well, in a materialism-dominated culture, you're dumb if you don't. And that's what we live in. Well, what first love looks like. And Jesus Christ said to them, we already read verse 4 of chapter 2 of Revelation, he says, you have left it. The first of the seven churches Jesus writes to is Ephesus because it was largest and most successful. Now, in Revelation 2, there are more commendations for Ephesus than any other church. Jesus just goes, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. In other words, they were still doing everything that they were doing. They were still the most vibrant, the most active, the most empowered church. But what he said is, your heart isn't in it anymore. What was it like when their heart was in it? Well, let's look at their salvation. As Paul pulled in, in chapter 19, look what it says. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. I'm in Acts 19.1. Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. When Paul came to Ephesus, that's the first thing he would have seen. That's the largest building that was ever built in the ancient world. That's the great temple of Diana or Artemis in Ephesus. That was an entire city block with 100 and whatever, the archeologists differ on how tall those columns are, a forest of columns. The, the uh, flat surfaces, kind of like the Parthenon there, were covered with gold. In the center of that was this, this pornographic statue of Artemis as, as she was a meteorite that fell from heaven carved into this, this object of worship. And Jesus wrote to that, by the way, some of you are thinking, aren't the pyramids bigger? The pyramids aren't buildings. I mean, the Great Wall is bigger. This was a building. This, this had rooms inside. This was not a, a structure. This was a building that was massive. Standing 10 stories high, taking up an entire city block, the Temple of Diana was completely covered with pure gold. It stood gleaming in the sun, directly in the center of the city. It became the third of the seven wonders of the world. In and around Diana's temple, prostitutes, both men and women, lured people for unbridled immorality and worshiped of Diana, the goddess of sex and fertility. Hundreds of temple prostitutes were always on the grounds of that building to promote unrestrained indulgence of the flesh. Ephesus was the magnet, not just for the sexually enslaved, but the center of black arts, of witchcraft, of superstition, and all the powers of Satan. Boy, what a place to plant a church, right? 
I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not the Bible buckle, you know, in America. Well, Ephesus, look at verse 10, was a city on a hill. And it con- Paul continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, what happened is because Ephesus, it was very strategic to come here, because Ephesus was the conduit to Rome, it was connected to the entire road system going into the empire. And so because of that, Paul knew that if you put a church there, it would go both directions. It would go toward the heart of the empire, Rome, and it would go to the extremities of the empire out that way. And he said, this is the spot. It was the gateway to the entire continent of Asia. It was a city where four major trade routes crossed. Rome, the largest city of the Roman Empire, traded directly with the second largest city, Ephesus, through its seaport. And from here, all of Asia was acceptable to receive the shipment of the gospel. What a place Paul picked. How strategic. What a better place could Jesus place his lamp, his church, to shine the light of the gospel into all the world. By the way, in the ancient world, Ephesus was the major publishing house. If you ever go cruise or something and go to Ephesus, Kushidashi, you get off the boat and you go in, and the first thing they show you is the library of Celsus, three stories high. And behind it was this massive place of copying scrolls. And most likely in that place, the what we call the book of Revelation, was sent from Patmos by John to have copies run off and copyist to copy and to distribute to all the churches. Well, every letter circulating among the churches came through Ephesus first. Missionaries were sent from here. Pastors got their start here. And from Ephesus, everyone who passed through and heard the gospel would look back at that place. Most likely, most likely, the other six churches of the seven churches, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, most likely are church plants outward from Ephesus. That's how amazing the ministry was. Well, let's look at the biography in verses 1 to 41. Paul arrives in verse 1, starts looking for disciples. He finds out these Old Testament saints are there who have never heard of the Holy Spirit, and you know that event that takes place. But starting in verse 11, and and the essence of what was going on here was these people believed what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, Remember Jesus said that? They just believed it. They believed the first thing in life was to surrender to Christ. And so this is what we see. Their first choice they made was starting in verse 11. And I'll, I'll read, you follow along. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. That's an understatement. Remember, Paul said he was going to work for a living, not be a burden to anybody. So Paul labored in the leather industry. Now, we don't know if he was a a tent maker. There were a lot more things they made out of leather. Uh, He could have been the personal tent maker. People that traveled on these caravans had this little device. It was kind of like an umbrella that was made that they could, while they were riding, uh, you know, in their chariot or whatever, they could put this thing up, and it folded up, and it was like a personal little Covering so they didn't get sunstroke out there as they were traveling. That was kind of an advanced thing. Or you could make a normal tent, or you could just be a craftsman in leather. Everything was made out of leather back then that was used, uh, the belts and all the different attachments for the, the soldiers and everything else. But we don't know quite exactly what Paul made. 
But we know that all leather workers had two objects. They'll show up. Watch, we'll keep reading. So that even, verse 12, a handkerchief or apron. Leather workers worked in these shops, usually down below is the sales area and up above is, is the living quarters, and they would be in these shops, and of course there was no air conditioning, and these were you know, kind of like not professionals, they are skilled workmen, so they didn't have any uh, benefits that the rich would have, and so you would have the sweat rag, and you would have the protection so you didn't jab yourself when you're you know, sewing or whatever your leather. You had your, your workman's apron, and you had your rag. Those were the two things that Paul's chosen trade would have had. Look what happens to them. So that even a handkerchief or apron brought from his body to the sick. Can you imagine Paul would be working on his project and he'd reach over and he'd go, There's rag went running off. Someone's carrying it to, you know, Aunt Zelda who is dying of whatever. And they just dropped the rag on her and she'd sit up and go, wow, you ready to go to dinner? Let's go to Chick-fil-A. I feel really good here. <laughs> that is unusual miracles. It never happened like this anywhere else but here. That's why it says, no, the text. I mean, God explains unusual, verse 11, miracles by the hands of Paul. Why? So that the gospel would spread widely. Do you understand, this biography of a very powerful church is so unfollowed today. This, when I was in seminary, there were all these books on how to build a church, and if it wasn't bus ministry, you know, it was youth ministry. If it wasn't youth ministry, it became the political thing, if you remember the Falwell days, remember, and political action. And then it became the seeker thing. Do you remember the seeker thing? And now it's the... Dave's talking about the health, wealth, and prosperity. It's like everybody's looking for something to build the church. This is the book God wrote on how to have the most powerful, effective church. And the secret is far from anything we have today. Do you notice that God's son, in verse 17, is magnified? Paul wasn't. Do you understand when God builds the church, the servants he uses don't get all the credit for it? We live in the personality cult time where it's like the bigger your church is, the greater Christian you are. You know, and, and uh, I used to love going to conferences. People at every pastor's conference, do you know what the first thing everyone does is? They walk around and they say, how big is your church? How big is your church? And I, I would wait for them to ask me. In fact, one of you asked me. Most of the ladies are about 120, 130 pounds. Most of the men weigh about 200 They never liked that. <laughs> you see, it's so external and personality-driven, but keep reading. The diseases, verse 12, left them, and the evil spirits went out of them just by waving Paul's handkerchief. This is unbelievable, but it's unusual. Now, if you watch television, it would be common today, right? If you pay $100, we'll send you the handkerchief and... It, this was unusual. God said this is unusual. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, now this is a little insight into angelology, demonology, the occult. 
You understand, demons are, are rebellious angels. Revelation, we're not going all that way, but Revelation 12 explains that. And these demons, actually the word Greek word for demon, daimon, means intelligence. They're intelligent spirits. They're non, they don't have bodies. They're, they can go through glass and walls and metal and into bunkers. They can go anywhere. There's no physical barrier to them. And so, and they can see stuff. They know all the languages of the world. You know, a baby can learn language in a year. What do you think a demon can do? So demons speak every language. They hear everything. They're all, there are probably some here, probably not very many. It's not a pleasant place for them. They don't like go like, but they might be some around. But you understand demons are intelligent. Look at this, what this demon says. An evil spirit, verse 15, answered and said, Jesus, I know. Remember that? Every time a demon was doing their thing, you know, thrashing around somebody on the ground trying to get them in the fire or drowned them, and they knew who he was, and they even would call him. In the Old Testament name of God, they would say, you are the Holy One of God. I mean, it's, so demons know who's who. And they said, we know who Jesus is. And Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man, verse 16, of whom the spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. Uh, Eskuo means to overcome. I mean, they were totally overcome. One guy wipes out seven, kind of like an action hero movie, you know, wipes out seven people, and look what it is. They fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's all the intro for verse 17. Look at verse 17. This became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in, in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was what? Not the name of Paul. See, something's going on here. In a materialism-dominated, pleasure-seeking culture like Ephesus, religious opportunism abounded. But when Paul arrived, he refused to become one of these religious peddlers. Instead of living off the hardworking people of Ephesus, he found a way to support himself, and he did this leather-crafting work. And God used that to have rags and aprons keep disappearing throughout the city. And can you imagine if you stole an apron and your mother was saved from a deadly fever or your son was saved from, you know, he drowned in the port and they threw it on him and he comes to life. I don't know what happened, but it was miraculous stuff. What did it produce? The first secret of a powerful church is that God's son is magnified. There is power that Christ offers that can't be faked, that can't be counterfeited. No matter how much money is in the offering plate or how many people attend, either they have the power of God or not. See, that's changed lives are what shows the power of the gospel. That's why I'm a great advocate of sharing the gospel. You want to see miracles? Lead people to Christ. See the dramatic transformation that takes place in someone's life. Well, second choice. Keep reading. Verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it was totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So, now look at this. Verse, verse uh, 20. So the word of the Lord grew. How did, how did the Lord grow in that town? Because of the consecration of the people. I pastored in New England in the uh, state of Rhode Island. 
Um, Rhode Island per capita is the most Roman Catholic state. It's more than Mary's land, you know, Maryland. Uh, Rhode Island is a higher percentage of Roman Catholics. In fact, when I would come into church on Sunday, do you know what most people said? They said, hello, Father. How are you? Good morning, Father. It's because they were former Roman Catholics and they just couldn't get out of their mind that I was the Father. And I'd say, you know, I'm not a Father. You're a saint. Boy, that blew their circuits. You know, because they think you have to be, you know, canonized. And, and I said, no, if you're saved, you're a saint. But the pastor that preceded me for about 14 years preached over and over on this. And he said, if you're coming to Christ, you got to get rid of all that hardware that's enslaving you, all those beads you can't turn loose of, all those little images, you know, that you wear to protect you and, and you know, you keep in your car to help you drive and everything else. Why? Because Catholicism has assigned the attributes of God to people. Mary saved me? Mary? How can Mary save me? Mary is a human. Mary is not omniscient. Mary is not omnipresent. She's certainly not omnipotent. Those attributes are God's. Yet you can go to St. Patrick's Cathedral and get in front of all those saints and pray for your soldier boy over in Iraq right there, and that saint will protect them in the battlefield. Really? You can ascribe the attributes of God to a human? In theology, they're called incommunicable attributes. That means you can't assign them. And so that pastor said, you guys are putting your trust in objects and images and you're venerating them and your rosaries. And you know what he did? He put a 55-gallon drum, moved the communion table. It was a big uproar. It's New England. You don't change anything. Put a 55-gallon metal drum and said, and many of those who had practiced all this stuff brought their stuff together, verse 19, and burn them in the sight of all. That church had laid, that church in New England had been dormant for decades because the people that came to Christ couldn't quite get away from their crucifixes and their saints and their rosaries. And they came and filled that barrel. Some of that stuff was generational. I mean, it was like very valuable. And they put it in there, and from that moment on, that church started 21 churches across Rhode Island. When I got there, it was this mega church. They had planted churches everywhere. They had house churches. They, they were training pastors. They had just become an amazing Ephesian-like place. Why? Because God's people got consecrated. Do you know what holds back many believers and many churches? Sin is tolerated. And, and sinful behavior is tolerated. When God's Son is magnified, God's people are consecrated. When Paul originally began spreading the gospel in Ephesus, he was not talking to commendable, God-honoring saints. They walked, he said in Ephesians, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's what he says in chapter 2 of the book to Ephesus. Paul says, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Remember that temple of Diana? Fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like everybody else that's lost. So these Diana-worshipping, sex-addicted, materialism-controlled, occult-practicing sinners were the core of who were coming to Christ. And Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And that old should be passing away. 
This is who God saved in Ephesus, those kind of people. But he doesn't just leave them there. Paul began to teach them about what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And all of a sudden, these recently dead, now made alive in Christ's saints, heard God's rebuke. That's where chastening comes from. Not from hammering people, but letting God start convicting them. The greatest change comes when it's prompted by the Holy Spirit. And their eyes were open, and they saw all the things in their lives that didn't glorify God, and they started cleaning house. Look at what it says in verse 18. Many of those who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many also those who practiced magic brought their books. That's what consecration looks like. It's, it's a conscious getting rid of what displeases God. And they did. And they went through their homes and found everything that promoted sensuality, everything that promoted the lust of the flesh, everything that reflected the occult. And they got rid of it. Basically this. They chose not to give Satan a foothold. Now, if we were studying the book of Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians, the book to Ephesus, chapter 4 says, neither give place to the devil. That's what Paul taught him. He said, all these things from your old life, all these things that are connected to, to the wickedness or to the religion or to the works orientation you had, you have to get rid of. And they did. And... So when God's son is magnified and when God's people are consecrated, look what happens now at the end of verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mighty and prevailed. That's the sign of a powerful church. God's word prevails. Uh, basically, what's going on? Well, it, it, back up to verse 9, which I hadn't read yet. It says, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 19 of Acts, it says, When some were hardened and did not believe. Remember, Paul went right always to the synagogue, and he always went there first. But when, many, when those people in the synagogue didn't like him and spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from there and withdrew to the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Look at verse 10. And there he continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard. What is this talking about? If you know anything about Roman culture, it's very much kind of like South America. They had a siesta. Most Roman cultures kind of shut down, like they still do in Europe, from about noon till about three or four. They had this long lunch hour. People would go home, they'd eat, they'd sleep, and then they'd work because it was so hot. At the heat of the day, they went home and ate and rested and everything. Then they came back three or four and worked until you know, until sundown. And so they had this central time in the day. And Paul took that time, rented a place, and started reasoning with people, started discussing. Actually, this is the word dialogizomai in Greek, talking through. He'd say, now, do you understand this? And he'd say, no. He says, okay, let me explain. I'll, I'll answer that question. And he took the scriptures and he connected where the people were to where God wanted them to be and explained how it happened. And someone else would say, well, if that's true, what about this? And Paul said, okay. And for two years, he dialogued. Secret number three of a powerful church is God word, God's word prevails. Here in Ephesus, Paul didn't just plant a church and move on. He began teaching daily in the synagogue. He reasoned, he persuaded but then, when he got thrown out of there, for two years, every single day, Paul came from his leather workshop and in his lunch break began to explain the scriptures to the people. And the word then really began to spread. He didn't just read the word, he explained it. Now, think for me about church in America today. It's much like a football game. 
The professionals are doing their thing and everybody else is watching. And you pay for them to do their thing. And there's a great disconnect. In most churches, no one goes up to anybody and says, where'd you read the Bible this week? Oh, good, and what'd you get out of it? Mm -hmm. And what is God convicting you about? What's changing in your life these days? Mm -hmm. And when's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Who are you taking with you to heaven? Did you know if you asked those questions, people would not want to be around you? When I was a youth pastor, I had a deal with every one of my students. I was a youth pastor in South Carolina. I had 100 kids in my youth group. I told them, every time I see you, I'm gonna ask you to share with me the verse you're currently meditating on that you've already memorized, out loud. And number two, where you're reading in the Bible and what God's doing in your life. And number three, how you're doing it, sharing the gospel with someone, who you're trying to, who you're praying for, who you have shared it with. I said, I'm always gonna ask you those three when I see you. I'll never forget the day I was walking down the sidewalk. I saw one of my students, one of my young people, my high schoolers, and I was walking toward them, and they walked toward me and went just like that. <laughs> and they, they turned and went down that, that sidewalk. And I knew why. Do you know why? Didn't have a verse, hadn't read the Bible, and we're not sharing the gospel. About, I'd say it was, it was supper time that I was walking somewhere else on a different sidewalk and I could see them coming toward me. And I walked toward them and I went like this. And they came like that. What do you think changed between that morning and that afternoon? Yeah, they worked on a verse. They read something in the Bible. Maybe they packed a track in their wallet or something to share. Do you understand that what takes growth is exercise? If, if you want to work out to improve something, you've got to, most people go to a lecture at church and it's kind of like going to brain surgery school where you don't have to bring the text, where you never get in the operating room, where you never see a patient, but you can pass if you just attend the classes. Would you go to a neurosurgeon like that? No, but that's most Christians. Nobody's asking them, where are you in your spiritual life? Are you seeing a decreasing frequency of sin in your life? By the way, what sins do you struggle with? Because do you know the verses that, that the word of God can set you free? Do you even know the scriptures that will help you resist those sins? See, we, it's a spectatorial event. There's no hardly any accountability or contact. What does Hebrews 10 say? We're supposed to be exhorting one another more and more as we see the day of Christ approaching. We're supposed to be the biggest cheerleaders for one another. And basically, the church is like a vase of marbles. And when they're all in church, they look so close, but when you tip it like that, they go just like that. And they go every direction. There's no connection. That's foreign. That's Western. That's not biblical. Biblical Christianity was close-knit, life-on-life, accountable. I mean, you live next to each other. You held each other accountable, not us. We have a garage door opener. We go inside, shut that door. I don't even have to talk to my neighbors. We put walls up, fences. That's not how it was. God's word prevails. By the way, I'll just share with you. This is our website on YouTube. I didn't know what YouTube was until 2014. And I was invited to do a counseling course and post it on YouTube. Look at that. There are, oh, that's an old one. There's a hundred and some thousand subscribers now. That was about three months ago. These people, did you know men watch YouTube? 80% are men. They want the Bible explained to them. And these are Q&As. 
These are all Q&As. For years I did Q&As at churches where I served, and they videoed them and they're online. Did you know that God is working in the lives of people when they have the Bible explained to them, when they're held accountable? Well, basically the lesson of Ephesus is love what God loves, hate what God hates. When God's son is magnified, when his people get consecrated, God's word prevails through them, and they love what God loves. You know what Jesus said? John 14, 21. He that has my word and keeps it loves me. It's simple. Christianity is following Christ. Loving what he says, loving him, and wanting to follow him. And he says, that's how I know that you love me. Jesus' admonition to Ephesus is to love God more than everything else. The number one reason people tell me they don't know the word of God is they don't have what? Yet we all have the same 168 hours every week. And if you logged, you know, even your iPhone will do it. It will tell you how much time you're spending doing what on your phone. You know what most people do? They disable that part. Because what it shows is that we... We play all too many games, watch all too many movies, uh, spend too much time fantasizing over everything on Pinterest. You know, we want to have a Pinterest party and have every, you know, cucumber cut in the shape of a whatever. And, but yet, we don't have time to go over the kids' Awana verses. You learn them yourself and get your sucker. But I'm going to be clipping my cucumbers for the party, you know, and putting a, a toothpick in them. By the way, I just pulled this out. Do you know what this is? This is my phone. This side is the phone. Do you know what this side is? This is the most valuable real estate I know of in the whole world. They found out that we touch these things over a thousand times a day. Did you know we do that? We touch them to make sure they're still in our phone, or I mean in our pocket or in our purse, and if it vibrates, you want to see who vibrated you, you know, and we take it out to do pictures, and we're calling all the time and ordering stuff. We touch this a thousand times a day. I found out that if I just taped on the back of my phone the passage I'm memorizing currently, that every time I pull it out of my pocket, I can make a conscious choice which side I'm going to look at first. It's a choice every time. And did you know I can learn entire chapters of the Bible because I touch this thing how many times? Yeah, look how dirty the tape is. I had to put scotch magic tape over it because your phone's covered with all kinds of microbes and pathogens and everything else. I didn't want the Bible to get dirty. But no, this is valuable. Jesus' admonition. My question to you is, what would be burned today if the spirit of conviction swept our church? What would we go home and put in that barrel? You know, most people spend more on their Netflix and Hulu subscriptions than they do on missions. They think nothing of $12.99 a month. I mean, you've got to have Netflix, don't you? And if not that, something. The power of the early church was simply genuine holiness. Energized by grace, they magnified Christ with their lives. God's word prevailed in their lives. They lived consecrated lives. And thus, the Spirit of God moved unhindered. I was talking to someone this morning, and we were talking about video games. And they said, you know... And they were talking about it. I said, yeah, yeah, I work with young people a lot. Primarily, we work with 20-year-olds. Bonnie and I are just 20-year-olds. All those next-generation people are like 20-year-olds. You know what I find out? You get deadened by watching those movies. The Holy Spirit gets grieved. He's already listed off what grieves him. 
Immorality grieves him. Witchcraft grieves him. Bloodshed grieves him. That's what all games are about. There's the supernatural, occultic side. There's all the death and destruction. There's all that. And then you get all that immorality mixed in. The Spirit of God moves unhindered. He flows unquenched, and God gets all the glory. No one competes for the credit. No one seeks to control. God reigns. The Spirit moves. Christ gets magnified. That's the secret of a powerful life. Love God most. And that's what Ephesus did. Well, it's time to pray. Before we pray, I want to tell you this. Um, this is what I teach overseas. Uh, they distilled down my whole 40-year pastoral ministry into start. I mean, how do you like that? That's every sermon I ever preached on the doctrine of salvation, uh, how to have assurance, uh, understanding the scriptures in Christ. And this is grow. This is mastering the Bible and understanding the theme of every book. And this is how to share it, how to disciple people, how to nurture people, how to... How to do the most simple thing that Dave's been telling us. Most of us know enough to disciple anybody. Because you've been in church most of you, most of your life. And we should be starting to deepen our lives to build into others. Because the only thing you can take with you to heaven are people. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. You let us live this day. I pray that we would redeem time every day for you that we would start our day surrendering to you, we'd walk through our day seeking to follow your leading and to be sensitive to your spirit, and that we would end our day entrusting ourselves to you, knowing it could be our last, and may we live every day expectant of having to give an account for how we invested our one precious life you gave us. Thank you for Ephesus. Thank you for letting us see what people that loved you most lived like, and I pray that you'd be magnified that we would be consecrated, and that your word would more and more prevail in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen.